We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. A good day to you, and welcome to the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. This is me, Lean, from ArsenalVision.co.uk. In today's show, Elliot, Paul and Tim will be discussing the um, victory against Norwich City at the Emirates on the weekend, and also the hilarious goings-on at Stamford Bridge with Tottenham blowing the title to Chelsea. So that was fun. Um, it's not been a very good season for Arsenal. It's been pretty disappointing in the end. Um, but at least, at least, at least, the worst of the worst hasn't happened. Can you imagine how awful and distressing that would be for Arsenal fans? You can't quite comprehend it. It would be horrendous. Horrendous. It would be thrown in our face constantly by everybody. So, at least that hasn't happened. And um, I can actually live my life in peace now. Um, as opposed to... What would have happened? It was quite hilarious watching them go 2-0 up and confident and full of belief, full of confidence. And then them just chuck it away like that. That was fun. It was all pretty hilarious stuff. Um, Anyway, I'm going to hand you over now. Uh, Enjoy the podcast and back after Manchester City. And now... A very special message from the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. We would all just like to, and I think I speak for everyone here, congratulate Tottenham Hotspur on their best season in 55 years. I think I speak for everyone when I say that their ability to lose the title from having been 2-0 up to a player who took eight months of the season off, resulting in a brawl that will likely get them all suspended for the rest of the season, 
was something that we were all able to enjoy together as one and really united the football family. So thank you. And now, on with the show. This is the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. I'm joined as ever by Tim and Paul. Tim can be found on Twitter at Stilberto. Paul can be found at Posing in My Pants. Hello, both of you. Hello. Hello. Good. Perfect. Well done. Harmony. Uh, so, I'll start with you, Paul. Quick question. How do hmm. you enjoy the Chelsea Spurs uh, Monday night matchup? It was absolutely awesome. It took me about five or ten minutes to get past the supporting Chelsea thing, but I surprised myself. I, I managed to lose all inhibitions and just embrace it. It was wondrous. I mean, sure, would have been your, better. Was your favorite part the two-goal collapse or the WWE match that broke out at the end? Uh, the WWE, it was just, it was just fucking great. It was like, it was like, I don't know what it was like. It was like they fucking lost the plot, um, because you know, two two, you know, a draw at Stamford Bridge. I mean, it cost them, but I mean, there was there was quite a bit of credit in that performance in many ways. And a two two at Stamford, you know, you could, but this will always be known as the game in which they c- totally lost their shit revealing how badly they just fucked up everything and it was just splendid absolutely splendid and then there was agent sesk and you know it was all the good stuff our old mate diego costa fond memories there it had it all uh collapse heartbreak testicle slapping really all the things you want um you know i i found it thoroughly enjoyable tim i'll ask you a quick question have you ever seen tottenham win the league uh, no, no, no I, I'm, Paul. I'm afraid I haven't. Paul, it's, I, escapes my. I, have you ever seen Tottenham win the league? I was a year too late. Would you believe? Really? I see. I have never seen Tottenham win the league. Well, that's a shame. Yeah. So we, I guess, we can't talk about their last title win, and now we can't talk about their next title win. So we might have to move on and talk about Arsenal. Um, but before we do, I think you know, congratulations to Leicester. I don't feel any need to be magnanimous. I think it fucking sucks that it's not us. I think it's incredible what they achieved. Um, but Tim, just really quickly, you yeah. know, we beat them twice. So for the people who will say, oh, this is once in a lifetime, it's a freak event, it's something you can't legislate for, Lester winning it, as wonderful as it is for them and it, taking nothing away from it, doesn't really have a bearing on our ability to be critical of Arsenal's performance this season, right? No, no, not at all. What what that actually means is, and I, I think I saw you point this out on Twitter, um, that means that over the course of the season, having taken six points off of them, we're, what, 10 points behind them at the moment. That means we've been 16 points worse yep. in the other 36 games or 34 games. Um, I passed my grade school arithmetic class. That was the last one. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that you know, if, if anything, it's, it's possibly a bit more of an indictment. <clears throat> Um, on us but I mean I, you know I think because we're in the middle of it at the moment and it's kind of happening and unfolding right now um, you know obviously everybody knows what a huge thing this is for Leicester to win the Premier League to, I mean to put that into perspective I, I predicted they'd finish bottom um, back in August and they finished top I mean that is absolutely incredible I think I heard someone say today you could have got better odds on Elvis being found alive Last August, and you could have got on Leicester to win the Premier League. I mean, that's are there 
Are there people that don't think Elvis is alive? (laughs) That's the size. Tell you though, if they if they put Leicester's scouting team on finding Elvis, they'll have him within a week. He'll be in a plane in the third division in France somewhere. This this is the interesting thing. If you look at Leicester's big money signings in the last year to two years, almost to a man, they've been flops. The closest has been Ajoa, who they bought for three and a half million, which which for them, again, putting this into perspective, is a big money signing. Actually, a lot of their big money signings or or players they paid a bit more money for have all been flops, really. Like, they've got Inla, who's not even making the bench, and um, that Croatian striker they bought, I can't even remember his name, is their yeah, record signing. And yeah, all the, all the really cheap players they picked up have just been have been wonderful. But I think it, it's a little bit like, and it's on a bigger magnitude, but it's a little bit like when we won the league without losing a game. I, I, you know, I remember thinking, I'm not going to realise how big this is for another five or ten years at least um, and I think it's the same with Leicester I think we're all going to look back in about five to ten years and go do you remember when that happened like that, that's still what the fuck you, you may you may not have realized how big it was when it happened but you probably yeah. didn't think that a decade later you'd still be waiting for it to happen again yeah I think the the reality is that what Leicester achieved is incredible and you can celebrate it and enjoy it, so to speak, without mm. without really having any reference or, or relation to Arsenal. Because I think you can yeah. discuss Arsenal's season almost independent of what Leicester have accomplished, especially given that they're not going to win the league with you know, 91 points or something like that. But all right, look, enough of that. I think there'll be time to summarize the season at the end of the season. There's still some work to do, and there's still a match to talk about. Arsenal did win a match this past weekend, um, lost amid all the uh, other news and excitement going on and the fact that it was a little bit of a soporific mess. Paul, simple question for you. Uh, Really Mm. a multiple-choice question, so you can keep your answer quick. Oh, good. Um, Olivier Giroud, bad striker or the worst striker? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you're a bad man. Um, the, so, short answer. Oh, right, I want to say the worst striker, but that's that's not. I, I, I want to say that too. In fact, I may have said that because because I'm annoyed. I'm very annoyed. Yeah. But I mean, we were. Uh, I came away from this. You know, I have my tendency to watch games a second time. If so. you watch that a second time, then I you're did. A big, wow. I did. Wow. Yeah. Um, you, so you know, I, you can do other things with that time, like pick lint out of your belly button. Yeah, well, I've got a reputation to protect now. Anyway, so here's, here's what I came away with it. Um, normally, when I watch games a second time, we're quite a bit better than we were when we looked like we were shit. And this one was only a very marginal improvement, did I find some stuff. This was, for me, this was like about the worst game we've played. And it's not that we were, like, utterly crap, because we're never utterly, utterly crap when you go back and look at it. It was just, in every single department, we were just, you know, flat, slow. Yeah, 
It was just, it was a terrible game. Uh, it, here's what I dreaded, and, and we kind of stole doing this pod today to, to get some other shit to talk about. There's not, there was nothing tactically to talk about, or at least that's how it felt at the time. Eventually, I dredged up a few thoughts on watching it a second time. Mm-hmm. But I was dreading doing a pod on it. There's fucking nothing to say. It was absolutely quintessential, you know... It, uh, I tell you what I thought watching the Champions League this afternoon. It was just like that game, but with no talent on either side. Yeah. I mean, it was absolutely <laughs> a classic. And, and without the intensity of that uh, match. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's yeah. funny It's funny you bring that up because when you watch, not just Atletico, it's easy to say, oh, they're so intense. Look at their intensity. They're also very organized and talented and disciplined. But watching that match, you saw two teams really giving 100% effort. Um, and... By comparison, do you really feel like that's the intensity that you're seeing with Arsenal right now? No. Now, you know, I... I know that's, other, that's pure hashtag narrative. It, but, it is. But and can, and can the can other just, side of me wells up a little bit and mm-hmm. says, you know, I, I now want to contradict myself and say, but there are reasons. And, and I'm sure we could all come up with some reasons. But the bottom line was, that was wogeous. And in terms of... Sorry, that's a... That's an Irish expression, possibly an English one. Um, absolutely shite. And for the manager to send out the team, uh, I think they had a lot. Uh, I think there was a massive cloud over them and the manager. For, but for him to send out the team in that mental state, uh, you know, you kind of got to question it a little bit. But, mm-hmm. hey, we won. We won. Yeah, look, I just want to say something about because on Twitter, I think – there's a growing group of people, and I count myself in that people, that take statistical analysis and sort of analytics seriously, not that I understand it at a serious level, but I think it's an important part of understanding what you're seeing on the pitch now, and that you're really a Philistine if you don't want to incorporate that in your understanding of the game. Um, I have to look up what Philistine means, but that's that's a different issue. Um, but, you know, you say things like, uh, it, does this team lack character or intensity or does this team lack focus? And people say, oh, that's pure narrative. You know, look at the statistics and look, look at the XG or the dribbles or the... But the truth is character does matter. The, you know, these are things that matter. We look at Nicholas Bentner. Nicholas Bentner had the talent to be a world-class footballer and didn't because he lacked character. Andre Arshavin lacked character. Danielson lacked character. We have players in our squad. Wojciech Chesney lacks character. Jack Wilshere may lack Wojciech character. So I think you do have to stop and ask yourself, has there been an issue over the past decade with the character of some of the people? I mean, William Gallus was our fucking captain. Um, I think it's fair to say that there have been character issues down the years. But Tim, let's talk about decision making by the manager. Um, I mean, at this point, can you think of any reason why he picked Olivier Giroud to start the match other than two fingers up at the fans? Um, no, no, quite frankly. Again, I can only think, I can only say what I said last time, whether I don't, you know, because it's difficult because we don't see Welbeck in training. We don't have, you know, any potential data or anything like that. I did see something um, Adrian Clark said today um, in, in the breakdown where he spoke about um, the top sprints um, of, of every Arsenal player in the last five games. In the last five games, Danny Welbeck has hit the top sprinting speed in every game except for the West Brom game, which he wasn't involved in. So, um, so you know, that I mean, that, that, that illustrates perfectly what he brings to us. But 
Um, he did say in his interview as well afterwards that he was he was still feeling it a bit even after just 35 minutes. So he seems to be conceding that he's still getting back into shape. But I mean, at this stage of the season, with so few games left, with a game a week, it just seems really odd to play him for four games in a row and actually play him fairly regularly after the injury and then stop. It's usually you handle them with kid gloves at the beginning, and I can I can only think that maybe he there is some reason to still handle him with kid gloves. Um, whether it's it, it can't be match fitness at this point. He's played too much. It, it 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 can only either be that there is still a slight worry over that knee, or he is just doing it. Um, as a little bit of a, you know, just a kind of show of stubbornness, whether he's just trying to kickstart something in Olivier Giroud. But again, we're, you know, we're at a stage of the season where even if Giroud had scored on Saturday and got his confidence back, I mean, really, so well. well we've, for we've for got, what? Yeah, exactly. We've Who got cares? two games left, and one of them's at home to Aston Villa. And I'm sorry, you know, I, I don't think Olivier Giroud's confidence should be a barrier to him hurting the Aston Villa defence on the last game of the season. And if it is... Well, and let me add this, Tim. Even if he gets a goal that restores some confidence for him, I think it has become clear that having him in the side impacts the performance of other players, players that you could argue are more important. Alexis, again, had another poor game by his standards. And we, we saw a real bit of form coming back into Alexis. And all of a sudden, it stopped again. And I wonder why. And Iwobi as well, who is playing brilliantly, and he's kind of stalled a bit, and I wonder why. Because basically we we, we had this really kind of quick-fire front three that was based on movement and everything. And then, you, you know, you put... And, and really, as much as anything, you're setting Olivier Giroud up to fail as well by putting him in a front three with Iwobi and Alexis, because they don't suit each other. If you want to play Olivier Giroud, you put him in a front three with someone like Chamberlain, someone like Walcott, guys that get to the byline, guys that are a bit quick, um, that maybe get in and around him. Um, that like and I would even argue an, uh, an Aaron Ramsey, who, yeah. who would run, who would used to run past him, but now that you have a sort of reined in Aaron Ramsey, exactly, it, it doesn't really work. <laughs> exactly. So you're, you're kind of as, as much as we're all frustrated with his form at the moment, you're actually setting Olivier Giroud up to fail as well by fielding him in that front three. And, and you know, as much as um, as much as I can sympathise with the little cut to the ear after the goal and everything, because, you know, if you give, as a supporter, if you give a little, then, you know, you should take a little bit back. Doing it after you've headed the ball down for someone else to score just comes off as a little bit desperate, to be honest. I think if you score... Yeah, all right, go for it. Fair enough if you really want to. But after, you know, it, it reminds me a bit of um, towards the end of his Arsenal career, Jose Reyes, you know, really stopped scoring goals. And, you know, he, he you know, being like a, a Catholic, he used to cross himself every time he scored. He got to the stage where he started like crossing himself every time he set a goal up. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was just thinking that, to be honest, you know, without wishing to cast dispersions on your religious beliefs or anything like that, it just looks like that's usually your kind of celebration move. So why are you doing it now? And, it, and that's, that's It's to call attention to the look. I'm, I'm doing something productive. Please don't get it, on my back. Exactly, exactly. And <laughs> yeah, um, yeah I, I, I just can't think of another reason. No. Um, I, mean, I mean, and you look at the style of play, and again, I, I'm not going to say this is scientific. We discussed this on a previous pod. 
the team attempted two through balls in 90 minutes, neither of which were yeah. accurate. One from Hector Bellerin, one from Aaron Ramsey. No through balls played by Mesut Ozil, no through balls played by Alex Awobi, um, no through balls played by Alexis Sanchez, who likes to, to play them. I mean, not even attempted. So it tells you, and again, you know, some of that can be down to a pack defense, a, you know, a Norwich team that maybe wanted us to play into wide spaces. But ultimately, the fact that you're not even trying it means the runs probably aren't there ahead of you to make that pass. And the um, second Welbeck came on, that happened. In fact, he did it, either, you know, he scored within, what, three minutes of coming on. He did it before yeah. the goal as well when he popped up at the back post. And, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't quite a chance of goal, but instantly it just showed you, um, you know, what what exactly what we were missing. Yeah. Um, and and so I, I just I don't know that anybody's benefiting from the Olivier Giroud experience right now. And the, the cupping to the ears didn't bother me so much in terms of his treatment of the fans as much as a big lump of a man, pretty much unmarked, headed a ball down for Welbeck to still have to use some pretty excellent technique to score. I don't know. I'm cupping my ears after that. Um, let's put it this way: if I got to cut my ears after doing things that impressive, you know, I'd have a few opportunities to like. I held the baby in one arm while getting out of the car door. You know, I mean, I wouldn't have a free hand to cut my ear with, though. All right, anyway, Paul, your uh, your thoughts on yeah the so, so wait, I'll give you a multiple choice: playing Olivier, starting Olivier Giroud, bad decision or the worst decision. <laughs> so fo- footballistically and form wise. Uh, the worst decision. I agree. Uh, the manager did explain things, and it's consistent with what Welbeck said. And the manager said that when you bring a player back after a long time, I don't know if this is true, that they come back with a burst, they're great for a while, and then they dip, and they've been watching him, and he was dipping. And hence his thing about, I think, the current... There's a headline on Arsenal.com with Arsene saying uh, he's a different kind of animal now, meaning he's, you know, that what we saw in that performance is him back to his best. And to be fair, when Danny came off, he, did, he didn't use those exact words, but he confirmed that he is struggling for match fitness. And, you know, he pretty much br- brought that up himself, and he said he was blowing. So um, those two seem to be on the same page, so... Yeah. I'm no fitness I mean, look, expert, but... Is it possible? And you hate to be cynical about things, but it, you know, if you're Danny Welbeck and Arsenal season's petering out, you feel like you're going to finish in the top four and you see the Euros stretched out right in front of you, maybe he goes to the manager and says, hey, boss, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit. You know, We might want to ease back. I mean, I mean, I don't know how Welbeck is, but I know if I were a couple matches away from going into a major European tournament and being in that manager's thoughts and my club had very little to play for... I might be inclined not to push to have myself in the starting 11. Um, but again, you're reading tea leaves at that point. Uh, let's talk Alexis Sanchez for a minute. You know, again, there's so much, so little of this game was great footballistically, as you would say, Paul. So we wind up getting into narrative and stories and, and body language and things like that. But Mesodozos looked pretty frustrated, including yelling out uh, a couple matches ago. This time it was Sanchez who took the frustration limelight spotlight. Um, he stormed, stormed is such a, a loaded word. He marched down straight down the tunnel after being subbed. It's not really appropriate. First of all, forgetting what our worries are. He shouldn't do that. The match is still 
up for grabs. Uh, it's one nil, and your team is playing. You should be out there supporting your teammates. But what did you make of him going down the tunnel? Moi, um, so not much. Uh, I mean, it's bad for him. Don't get me wrong. Um, I, I think we got so many things to worry about in terms of mentality. Uh, obviously, that's another sign that the that it's not everything's not kosher uh, in the dressing room. But you also want plenty of frustration, and in some ways, we haven't seen enough people getting annoyed, getting frustrated, getting pissed off. Um, so. I don't know what to make of it. I'll kind of take it. Uh, the manager didn't te- seem too phased. You know, it was kind of a weird, odd sort of a day, atmosphere-wise. I'd be interested in Tim's thoughts on that at some stage. Yeah, we'll come, we'll come to that. Um, so, you know, uh, on the, the two walks that made me laugh, there was that one. There was Sanchez walking down the tunnel. And then I'm convinced Ozil's still walking away from the referee right now who's calling him back for a yellow card. I, w- I would be too. Um, by the way, n- n- no word on any action being taken about that, right? I haven't heard of any disciplinary action. Yeah, or? I haven't. Yeah, <laughs> they got their hands full over there. Yeah, yeah bank holiday, and they wake up to Spurs Chelsea on the Tuesday. Jesus Christ! He's picked. He's picked the right weekend to do something like insignificantly petulant, given the Fellaini, the Fellaini incident. Um, yeah. Van with Hal, who? With who? He was booked. Van Hal telling us that rough sex was fine. But, <laughs> that was uh, fine too. Sorry, t- Tim, what were you trying to say among Paul and I being little? <laughs> um, Ozil was booked for dissent, so there's nothing else they can do about it. Oh, he was, uh-huh. he was booked for walking. Okay, good. Um, well, there you go. See, if you just understand the rules of football, it's so much easier <laughs> to identify a solution to this sort of thing. Um, so, Tim... I mean, you saw it. He's, he walks down the tunnel. It's not great form. Alexis mm. looks frustrated. Do you think one or both of them could be off in June, or do you think this is a situation where it'll probably be August? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's a really difficult one because on balance, I, I agree totally with what Paul said. I, I want the players to be frustrated um, about what's happened this season. I'd be incredibly worried if they weren't. Um, but I want them all to be frustrated. I don't want it to be a situation where our two best players are frustrated and no one else really is. That would well, be you, you very, want them to be dangerous. frustrated because the team failed, not because their teammates are shit. <laughs> no, but equally, I, I think there is as good a chance that Alexis was frustrated with himself because he didn't play well. And, um, <clears throat> I, I, I've actually had the pleasure of seeing him on the training ground once. And... Um, I can confirm a story that Amy Lawrence tells that when he gives the ball away in training, he like punishes himself by doing half a lap of the pitch or if he misses the goal, he goes and runs to the halfway line and back to kind of punish himself. Um, if he so does that every time he gives the ball away. Yeah, he must be running a lot. <laughs> it's, it's clearly not. Um, but, you know, this, this is the kind of guy he is. He really, really, really holds himself to a very, very high standard to the point that he punishes himself because, uh, you know, you can just see it that, that he's very, very motivated. And I would like to think that at least partially that's what it was down to. But, you know, you can't, I don't think you can just completely ignore the fact that Ozil, you know, had that outburst at Sunderland, you know, in an isolated moment, but that sounded like a cumulative frustration to me. He got booked for um, for dissent um, on this occasion, and that was quite a prolonged rant at the referee. And then, you know, Sanchez walking down the tunnel. 
it's it's not great. You'd rather, on balance, you'd rather not see it than see it, if you know what I mean. If someone gave you a choice and said, well, you know, we're not playing that well and you can have your best players doing this or you can have them not doing that, you'd probably choose not because on balance it is quite worrying. Um, I just hope that there's a sense of kind of frustration with themselves or frustration because they're perfectionists and they want to put it right and that that rubs off on the rest of the squad. And certainly when Alexis first joined, a lot of the players said, you know, he's raised the level of the squad because we see how hard he works. Um, and, you know, whether that was whether that was just um, kind of nice sound bites or whether it was actually true, I don't know. But everybody remarked on that. And I hope that's what it is. But obviously none of us can say for sure. And while we can't, um, it's, it's difficult not to worry a little bit. I would be incredibly surprised if they both went. I'd be really surprised, um, not least because I don't think either of their contracts are quite at the stage where we would entertain selling them even if they didn't sign. Um, but the good, the good thing is, by the way, also, I mean, you have Alexis who has played for Barcelona and yeah. Ozo who's played for Real Madrid. And so they've already been have made their big club moves, so to speak. Indeed. Um, so there there aren't a lot of clubs, I think, that would tempt them away from London and the money they're making at Arsenal and being the stars at Arsenal. Um, I mean, Bayern Munich does come to mind uh, for either or both of those players, especially given that Ancelotti's going there. But, you know, we've seen players kiss the badge and then fuck off, too. So, may, you know, maybe... Yeah, yeah. It is just a tempest in a teacup. Yeah. I do think if Arson stays around next season, which he looks almost certain to do, the club will push the boat out to make sure everybody stays on board, whether it's new contracts or just a gentleman's agreement. It, let's say Alexis is fr- frustrated and is starting to lose belief. I can't imagine the club wouldn't do everything within their power to make the case one more year. And in a year's time, we will do whatever you want to do if you if you want to move on. But one more year here, guys. Let's keep the team together. You know together. what's going to help, Paul? It, what's yeah. going to really help is he's he's going to have two broken legs after the Copa America Centenario or whatever it's called. Uh, so yes. he won't really be sellable in the summer, which is good. <laughs> um, and, you know, if we're lucky, Ozil can do his knee playing for Germany. And then yeah, neither right. of them are going to be sold after that. So there's always yeah. that. Um, or they'll all come back and Arson will explain in November that the reason we've lost every game is because ours is the only team that's tired after the Euros, you know, like after the World Cup. I look forward to that moment. Um, yeah. One of the things we've talked a lot about over the past few months because it's been problematic uh, is the midfield. So we got to see the Ramsey-Elneny pairing again, Paul. Uh, we've started yeah. to see more of this. I don't um, like it. Yeah, sell me on it, would you? <laughs> I can't. Um, so, I mean, By the I way, mean, real quick, 103 passes for Ramsey, 87 for Elneny, 94% completion for Elneny, 88% for Ramsey. Um, yeah. Uh, so, you know, I mean, they're tidy with it. <laughs> yeah, well, they're tidy in these two games where there the wasn't much of a midfield battle. Uh, you know, Narch were... Your completion rate's pretty high when your opponent is sitting in their uh, their box for 90% of the game. Um, I don't like it. Uh, Neither of them's a DM, which in theory mightn't be too much of an issue in a game like this. But at the end of that first half, they created Narge created three or four serious opportunities right through the middle of us in one form or other. 
and neither of our CMs was keeping the, the lines tight enough to our back four. Uh, Adrian Clark did a good job talking about that uh, in the breakdown, as always. Um, and going forward... How much does he pay you for these promotions, by the way? Um, I, I can't help it. He's just... He's so bloody good, that guy. Uh, anyway, right, keep going. Um, going forward, I mean, you saw it in the game today with uh, Bayern and Atletico Madrid. I mean, they're facing the same... Basically say, facing the same problem. And Bayern may have lost, but on three or four occasions, they cracked open Atletico Madrid by, a, you know, a brilliant... Um, line-breaking pass or a ball over the top to a really good run. We didn't have really good runs, and we certainly didn't have any brilliant passing coming from either El Neni or Ramsey in that spot. You need somebody like Asante who can put in those crosses, uh, or sorry, those those diagonals or those balls over the top. Uh, another point of attack beyond Ozil, because we're too predictable if it's just Ozil. And we just absolutely lack something there. The beauty of having Coquelin and El Neni is we got a bit more defensive bite. Uh, and the fact is, Coquelin creates opportunities just from turnovers, tackles. He does line-breaking passes. Now, he's not as clean as these other guys with his passing mm-hmm. uh, and he flubs stuff and he's no, you know he's nowhere near the finished article but somehow we've greater dynamism from midfield with those with El Neni and Coquelin for example uh, not to mention Cazorla um, you know I, I like Ramsey but I want to see him further up trying to do a Muller on the right or something like that uh, this this is kind of not that either one of them was terrible I think they were both pretty good, and they both did a bit of everything. But it's just, you know, the, our midfield didn't drive us forward. It didn't give us another counterpoint to Ozil from a creativity standpoint. Ramsey couldn't get in behind because he had defensive duties to share. Uh, it was just a bit of a, you know, I mean, you, you can't blame any one person on the day. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't, just because... N- not even not, Giroud? <laughs> not even Giroud. Okay. Just, just be, just because we're playing a Norwich, doesn't mean this kind of midfield is going to create for you. It's just a bit of everything and not much of anything. Yeah, I, I mean, Tim, what about you? I mean, just, just sometimes you just have to look at what you produce with the team on the pitch to determine if it's working. This is Norwich. I would say that if they go down. One of the reasons they'll be going down is because defensively they've been an absolute shambles. Would you agree? Um, um, they're a bit weird, Norwich, actually. If you look at them, they've gone through <clears throat> this um, this kind of thing all season where they've struggled for balance. So occasionally they open up, and yes, mm-hmm. then they can see tons of goals. They shipped, I think, six against 60, Newcastle. 61 in total. Yeah, um, and they shipped just from five a quick against glance. Liverpool. Yeah, only only Villa, Newcastle, and Bournemouth have shipped more, and that's with Newcastle and Bournemouth. It's you know it's two or three goals difference. But they do. They have also gone through periods this season where they've been defensively like just after they they shipped six at Newcastle, they completely mm-hmm. shut down. And I think for the three games after, they only conceded like two goals or something, but they didn't score. And uh, Norwich have been kind of in this period all season where actually when they open up a bit they've got some good attacking players and they can carry some threat 
but then they leave the back door open so they they bolt the back door and then they can't score again and that's the kind of flip-flop um that they've been doing all season um, and what we saw when we played them at Carrow road that you know we found them incredibly difficult to break down and you know that that's that's again what we found on saturday which i don't think should be any huge surprise I think um, with Ramsey. Well, it undermines my point just real quick because because the thing I was going to say to you, and then I'll just let you you pick it right back up, is just that other than Welbeck's goal, which was obviously shot on target, we had two shots on target, both from outside the box, one from Alexis and one from El Neni. I mean that for Arsenal to be playing Norwich at home and and put three shots on target, the system isn't working, right? I mean, is that a fair conclusion to draw? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I I think Ramsey and El Neni is okay. Um, I think, you know, having Coquelin and El Nenny against Crystal Palace was a bit of a problem um, because we really struggled to kind of break through the lines. Um, and I'm not saying we did that brilliantly against Norwich, um, but we were able to play a little bit higher up the pitch. The problem is we didn't do enough with it once we got higher up the pitch. But against Palace, the problem was we were kind of in the centre circle, whereas against Norwich, we were possibly 20 yards further forward. Um, for, for all that that was worth. <clears throat> I certainly wouldn't go to Manchester City with Ramsey and El Nenny, and I don't think he will. I think he'll bring Coquelin back um, into the into the team for that. Um, I You know, I think it's an okay pairing, but I do think that Ramsey isn't doing what comes best to him, um, and that's probably under some instru- instructions be a bit more circumspect, which against teams like Norwich and Sunderland, you know, I think we've asked him to be a bit more I presume we've asked him to be a little bit more disciplined in those games, and I'm not sure how necessary it's actually been. Um, and actually, Norwich did carve out a few chances as well, so I'm not sure that um, that, that we were defensively particularly much stronger for asking uh, Ramsey to rein it in. So, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't go to Manchester City with it. For, for those games, I'd, I'd be happier with it, actually, if... Ramsey released the handbrake just a little bit. What? Uh, sorry, I was I was just uh, looking up some statistics here that I wanted to try to hit you with, but you've you've caught me off guard by stopping talking before I had them compiled. So now I have to waffle a little bit and, and come back with something interesting. Can, um, can I just throw in? Thank God. Okay. Yep. Paul. Yeah. yeah as I was going to say, why don't you jump my in? Criticism, yeah. For my criticisms of that pair. I mean, the other thing you see today is that the way you attack somebody like Norwich is with pace and runs in behind, which we just didn't have and didn't do for all the mm. reasons we've already talked about with Giroud. So, you know, while I'll criticize maybe Elneny and Ramsey for not adding any brilliance and, and, uh, and passing and runs, what was ahead of them was kind of pretty limp. And, you know, Wenger himself admitted as much when he explained why he took Iwobi off. Basically, he said he needed runs in behind. He wasn't getting any. Didn't quite say that last bit, but he wasn't. You know, Iwobi tends to run towards the ball or try and dribble through the middle of a packed Norwich. I I still think he had a reasonable first half, but um, nobody was running in behind. And, you know... Uh, Sanchez was becoming more and more static, so he wasn't getting in behind. Interestingly, the goal, although it isn't, it isn't Welbeck running in behind, uh, we saw plenty, as Tim talked about, we saw plenty of, of Welbeck stretching the play, using his speed, stretching it out on the wing, uh, making runs in a few minutes that, 
that I think unsettled Norwich and had them spinning a little bit. Then we did a, a semicircular passing across them. But interestingly, Sanchez, if you ask me the one player who made that goal happen uh, beyond the obvious um, uh, candidates, it mm-hmm. would be Sanchez. He makes it a little Theo-esque uh, Veins are popping all over the place. You're gonna, yeah, you're gonna lose any points you're scoring. Yeah, by, by TOS, to it one of his little diagonal runs from the right in behind, and he pulls two or three defenders. Well, pro, one or two defenders towards him, and then the ball gets recirculated to Ozil. Bellerin puts in the cross, and each one of those guys has a little more time, a little more space, as do Welbeck and Giroud, because for the first time in the match, everybody's kind of been fainted half a step the wrong direction. And you can, you can see the play pulled with Sanchez on his little run. So I don't know if Welbeck coming on and just stirring things stirred Sanchez into getting on the, the shoulder and making that run. But a big piece of that play, because we've had plenty of Bellerin crosses in recent times, plenty of balls going into Giroud, but this mm-hmm. was one of the few moments where we seemed to have that little bit of extra space to put in a quality call, uh, cross. Giroud was uncontested for the header. Everybody had a bit more space because Norwich were half a step behind. That would be my take on it. And so in defense of the midfield, uh, until we brought Welbeck on, they, di- they didn't have a lot to hit with line-splitting passes or creativity. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you know what I think is interesting, too, is when you look at pass combinations, you guys ever do that? Look at who passed to who? Um, Well, you know, because we look at passes, but I think it can be interesting to see, you know, who played the passes where and who and so on and so forth. And if you have the Stats Zone app, um, you, you can see the different pass combinations. And we've talked in the past about how we think Ramsey and Giroud are somewhat complementary. Ramsey played six passes to Giroud. Now, that may not sound like a lot, okay? But realize that <laughs> uh, Sanchez played one pass to Giroud. Uobi played one pass to Giroud. Elneny played one pass to Giroud. You know, th- these are your frontline players, right? You, you Elneny, a central midfielder. Sanchez one of your wingers uh, will be one of your wingers and both who like to come more into the middle to influence play. And, and they, they simply weren't playing the ball to their center forward. They weren't exchanging passes with their center forward. And so we talk about Giroud's holdup play, you know, and we talk about how he works as a focal point, but that would suggest to me that he wasn't really working as a fo- focal focal point. Now Ozil did play nine passes to Giroud, which was sort of the most, the the most significant combination there. So he was, you know, he was trying to involve him. But I just think it's interesting that you're not seeing the the exchange of passes between that supposed focal point and the wide forwards or the central midfielders as much. Um, I think that just about covers it for the match. I I guess really quickly, just one thing that we could probably touch on is is Alex Awobi. We've seen a lot of him. Tim, you and I talked a little bit. I guess we we both. We all talked a little bit last podcast about maybe it was time to get him out of the firing line a little bit. And and you, I think, rightfully pointed out that in the first 20 minutes or so when we were playing well last match, he he sparkled then and he kind of dropped with, with the whole team. Once again, this was not a great performance by the team as a whole, but I thought it was maybe his most off-color performance. 
do you, do you think maybe it's just getting to be a little too much expectation on someone who who maybe isn't quite ready to be playing at this level every match? It could be, but I, I think it's got much more to do with who we're playing at centre forward for the reasons I spoke about earlier. So I'm happy uh, to pile on to that theory. But <laughs> a, a player like Iwobi would thrive on a much more mobile centre forward that you could combine with because that dovetails with his natural abilities and actually despite the rotten form that he's in, I think there's there's probably a better, you know, probably if you had Theo Walcott centre-forward, you might, in the last couple of games, you might have seen a slightly better Alex Iwobi because that kind of thing suits him and it suits Alexis Sanchez more. So, you know, I think the fact that Iwobi and Alexis have both dropped off at exactly the same time, um, you know, I think there's a common denominator there. And again, I'm you know, I'm not, necessarily having a dig at Giroud for that. It's that those players don't compliment him either. Um, and I, I think it's got more to do with that. That said, uh, at City on Sunday, I fully expect to see Ramsey back on the right, um, Elneny and Coquelin in the middle, Alexis back to the left. I hope it's Welbeck um, up front, but I, I certainly expect um, it won't be maybe to be taken out of the firing line for the next game, certainly not least because of because of the the level of the opposition. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to do this really quickly because I, I know that we wanted to wrap this up a little bit quickly, and we've we've talked a pretty boring game to death here. I, I think we can't we probably can't call it a pod without addressing the protest. Um, or you know what sort of passed as a protest in this case, and I'll stay with you for a moment, Tim, because you were at the stadium. Uh, and really, I have two questions for you. First of all, just your thoughts about the protest in general, um, in terms of the the level of participation in it, and and how it was how it was received at the stadium. But then also whether you think the poor participation or I would say relatively poor participation in the protest is in any way indicative of support for the manager or if it's more about the protest? Um, I'll answer the second one first because I think it's a shorter answer. I don't think that's a resounding kind of support for the manager because let me tell you that is the very first time that there is only one Arsene Wenger chant has gone up this season. It has not gone up at any other point which gives you a better barometer um, what that was about, that was just, I think, just a reaction and it was the only way because, you know, I think people, a lot of people are just in the same place that probably I'm in. And I said this on the Askcast on Friday, I would welcome a change of some sort, but I am definitely not angry enough to protest about it in the stadium or to turn or to volubly turn against um, a, a guy I respect like Arsene Wenger. So, and I think a lot of people are probably in that place, and that's probably what we saw on Saturday, as opposed to resounding support for Arsene Wenger. As for the protests and the level of participation, um, I mean, I, I let me kind of caveat this more than preface it by saying, um, like I said on, on on Friday on the Askcast, you know, I, I've got no problem with. Um, the concept of the protest and blah, blah, blah. And basically people are entitled to do what they want, right? As, as long as it's respectful and within the rules of, um, of the stadium and their ticket, then they have every right to. And, you know, there's not really another avenue for supporters to make their voices heard. But what, what I thought after the game, and again, this is not an indictment on the people who came up with the protest or publicised it or anything like that. 
but I actually felt a little bit embarrassed after the game when it actually went down. And <clears throat> I'm not taking sides in this debate. I'm just criticising the fact that there are sides at all to take. Um, the only times that the stadium was approaching loud were to boo the substitution of Alex Huobi, to cheer the goal, and then the, in the 12th and 78th minutes when the protest took place. And I was looking around and I was thinking, God, if, if I think what's happened is everyone's begun to take their silly little opinions on the internet a bit too seriously and they started to take themselves a little bit too seriously because I looked around and I thought imagine if everyone was invested in you know distilling their twitter opinions onto a piece of a4 or you know doing a yarboo I'm for this I'm against this and you know distilling their little manifestos into 60 minutes 60 seconds of circus basically and I thought mm -hmm. imagine if everyone was invested in either backing the team inside the stadium, or even if you don't want to do that, just enjoying the fucking game. It's, just, it's a game of football. And like at the end of the day, it's something you do with your leisure time to enjoy yourself. And I, it just, it felt like a complete circus to me. And, you know, I think about protests, really worthy protests that have worked this year, like um, stuff around ticket pricing, you know, stuff that everybody can get behind. Uh, things that affect everyone for the greater good and actually do affect change. And if you're an Aston Villa fan at the moment, you've got Randy Lerner as your owner. Yes, protest your balls off because your club is being screwed, quite frankly. Um, and I, I don't, you know, I don't personally feel Arsenal are, are anywhere near that. But but that's not my objection so much. My objection is that everybody got so animated and excited and invested in basically saying. Look at what I say to strangers on the internet all week. And I just sat there thinking, when I come in here inside this stadium, I don't give a fuck what any of you think about any of this stuff because it's just irrelevant and stupid. Um, what's happened is we all feel like we're the heroes in our own movie, you know? <laughs> and yeah. I mean, you know, I, I taking am. That yeah. in, taking that inside the stadium, and I just think, I just want to watch a game of football and I want my team to win. And, you know, like I said, I know there's a thorny subject of, well, when else do you voice your dissatisfaction, which, which I understand. But I just it just felt it felt in this particular scenario like a circus. And I don't think that that's what the, the intention, by the way, of the people and the supporters groups that promoted it. But that's just how it came off to me. It just looked like all yeah. we've done is just drag our stupid fucking online infighting inside the walls of a stadium where... Basically, you're paying a lot of money to be entertained and to spend your leisure time effectively. And I, I just, I don't know. I took a big jump back from it and I just thought, this looks really fucking silly. This just looks stupid. This looks like lots and lots of people have just got very, very full of their own self-importance, like their little internet arguments actually matter. And, um, I, I thought it was quite sad, um, to be honest, and I don't really know where it goes from here. Does this happen again at the next home game? Do we keep just playing out this little theatre? Um, you know, I, it, it's not for me, quite frankly. I, I, I'm a little bit embarrassed that this has become um, come to the, the attention of the whole nation. Um, yeah. I, I think it's it's really sad and ultimately a bit a bit useless, to be honest.
Yeah, there's a, there's a line in um, Animal House where they say they can't do this to our pledges, only we can do this to our pledges. And there's something about Arsenal fans berating Arsene Wenger on the internet amongst themselves that feels okay to me, but yeah. doing it in public in the light of day in front of non-Arsenal supporters and the media feels less okay to me. I, I, I'll yeah. wrap up with my thoughts in a minute, but Paul, I want to give you your, your, uh, your say on the protest. Yeah, um, I really don't want to say too much on it. I agree with everything Tim said. They have a right to do what they did. It seemed ill-conceived as a protest. I mean, I tweeted before it, this is going to feel embarrassing. Um, In a way, I didn't hope it was a flop. I just hoped it was kind of what it was, not quite a complete flop, a bit embarrassing and uh, maybe enough face face saving on all sides that they don't do it again because they remember it was embarrassing mm-hmm. and the rest of us were embarrassed and and let's do something different or nothing next time so basically it it, it was it was bad enough that I hope they realize they're a long way from being able to do what they want to do here and we just stop embarrassing ourselves. Yeah. I'll give you guys, if if you will uh, indulge me, my, my quick hits on a couple of the things around the protest. So first things first, uh, Tim, I, I completely agree with you. I don't think that the turnout for the protest is in any way a reflection of support for the manager or, or lack of support there, therefore. I, I literally just think it is that a lot of people find protesting in the stadium unpalatable or they're not on the internet to even know that one was taking place um, or they don't want to hurt Arsene. You know, I think the one Arsene Wenger chant was as much protecting the feelings of a man that a lot of people care about or an apology. as it was. Or, or what? Sorry. Yeah. Almost like an apology. Like, yeah. sorry for well, these people. <laughs> so, yeah, sorry you're dealing with this. But I, the funny thing is, I think a lot of the people who were singing one Arsene Wenger might still think Arsene Wenger's time might yeah. be up. Um, you know, if I saw someone beating Arsene Wenger over the head, I would run to his aid. But that doesn't mean I want him to still be the manager. Um, so I think you can separate those two things. What's harder to separate is that, unfortunately, the people that seem to be organizing these protests are attracting a very unpopular element. You know, here in the United States right now, there's an interesting presidential election taking place and Donald Trump is running and he's doing really well. Um, You may not think there's anything wrong with Donald Trump or his message, but for one reason or another, whether by design or by accident, it's attracting a lot of unsavory people who think a lot of unsavory things. And When you're organizing a protest and there's a very visible group of people who are a part of your protest singing about gassing the Jews and killing the manager, you've got a problem. Um, And it's not just an optics problem. It's a real problem. Uh, There is no place in humanity, let alone football, for these kinds of sentiments. And for a protest that is presumably about the direction of the club as a sporting organization to deteriorate into that kind of hate speech is problematic. Um, and so I could never protest because I could never allow myself, I, not that I could never protest, I, could, I would never be a part of a protest that is visibly aligned with people who would behave in that manner. 
Um, and, and that's just unfortunate that those people exist. And I know that not everybody who protested feels that way or believes in that, but unfortunately you, you become associated with it. Um, and that's really problematic for me. And then last but not least, I would just say that I am not an agent for change. I don't see myself as an agent for change when it comes to this at the end of the day, Tim, I think you kind of touched on this. It is just football. It is entertainment. It is something we do with our leisure time. And while I love going on the internet and debating it, and I love doing the podcast with you fine, intelligent, uh, friends and, and debating it. it. And, and while I, I love being argumentative sometimes and having strong opinions, I don't Johnny see Bennett. myself as an agent for change. And so I think there is something a little silly about, as you said, Tim, taking those opinions too seriously and suddenly seeing yourself as somehow part of the entertainment. Because you're not. Um, you're, you're the audience. Um, and I know there are people in England that would say, well, that's not true. The TV money is because of us. It's because of the atmosphere. And we can get in that whole debate. But at the end of the day... You're the audience. They're the entertainers. Yeah. Um, okay, well, that'll wrap it up. Look, the, the key thing here is that the title decider between City and Arsenal is next weekend. So we want to keep some powder dry for that. I want to thank Tim and Paul for being here. You can find Paul on Twitter at Posn in my pants. You can find Tim on Twitter at Stilberto. You can read Paul's blog when he does it. You can read uh, Tim's writings uh, more frequently uh, at uh, Ars Blog, which is a fantastic blog about Arsenal, not about um, the human arse. And uh, I am Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. You can give us a five-star review on iTunes. We'd appreciate it. You can then say nasty things about me in your review. Okay, let's leave it there. Tim, thanks so much. I appreciate it. My pleasure, as always. Uh, yep, I agree. And Paul, uh, a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Yeah, cheers, everybody. If you feel the need to laugh at Tottenham, go ahead. It's cathartic. Uh, until the title decider next week, cheers. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com